Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Acts chapter 11, if you're a guest with us, we are in the book of Acts. We will be, can you turn me down just a hair, guys? I feel like I'm in a tunnel a little bit. Um, If you're a guest with, we're in the book of Acts. We have been, I think this is our ninth week. And uh, we will continue up into Thanksgiving. Then we're going to celebrate Advent as a church. And then we'll come back to it in the new year. So we will be in Acts chapter 11 and 12 today. I'm going to read a couple portions out of that. So I'm going to have you stand with me so that we can uh, read God's word together. And then I'm going to pray. And then we will get into it. Acts chapter 11. If you're following along in your Bible, I'll be in verse 19. If not, it'll be up on the screen going to introduce you today to a new person by the name of Barnabas, and we're going to read a pretty crazy story that I'm excited about. So Acts 11 and verse 19, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of them, believing, turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Uh, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch, And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And then go to Acts chapter 12 and verse 6. Acts 12 and verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him, this being Peter, out on the very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals, and he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and he did not know what was being done by the angel and that it was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. And when they came to the first guard and then to the second, and then they came to the iron gate leading the city and opened them on its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And Peter came to himself and said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all of the Jewish, and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, and they were gathered together and were praying. And he knocked at the door of the gate, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, and recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate, and they said to her, you are out of your mind. She kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him, and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the testimony that we're going to read today of Barnabas and for just this incredible story of you. freeing Peter from prison. And God, I think there's some really encouraging truths that we're going to come across as a church today. And so I pray that you would take uh, the insignificant nature of my speaking and expand it by your spirit. 
I pray, God, that you would speak to us in a way that only you can and that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, God, and that you would change us on the spot, that you'd be glorified, that we could rejoice and praise you together. We thank you for all these things and the belief that you'll do it. We pray them according to Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So we've come to Acts chapter 11 and 12, and we are seeing that the gospel is spreading out, starting in Jerusalem, going to Judea, then going to Samaria in Acts chapter 8. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 11, there's a full-fledged church in Antioch, and it is the first time that a church is called a Christian church. And what's interesting about this is that if you had been kind of tracking what was going on in the church up until this point, you would have thought that it was a Jewish religion. And so if you were looking at this church, the followers of Jesus, you would have said, if I am going to become a Christian, I need to become a Jew, and all the things that went along with that. By the time you get to Acts chapter 11, you see that God is not only working in the Jewish people, but he's working in all people. And a new community is being formed, and a new community is being developed, something that hasn't been seen before, something that hasn't been done before. And the surrounding culture looks at it, and instead of calling it a Jewish religion or the way, they name it after the instigator of the movement, Jesus Christ. And so they call them Christians. And it wasn't a complimentary term. It was kind of a sneering term. Those are those people who believe in this Christ. They're Christians. But there was things that were going on that they couldn't argue with and they couldn't debate with. They just give it a name as it just really goes bonkers throughout the region. By the time the gospel is spread to Antioch, which is a very strategic city known for its diversity, the church is exploding there, and it's full of people who are, in our language, new to church. They're unchurched people. They're not coming from anywhere. It's not like, well, I grew up Lutheran, and then I rebelled for a little bit and did some stuff I'm not proud of, and now I'm back. That's not the story, right? They are saying, I've never even heard of this Jesus guy. I don't know what you're talking about with Torah and scripture and all that. These people are coming from absolutely nowhere. And it's really the first time in the Bible that we see uh, a bunch of pagans become Christians and form a church. And here's what I can tell you what was going on at that. Stress. (laughs) It was stressful. And this is a brand new baby church. And these people have just found out about Jesus and just fell in love with Jesus and just given their lives to Jesus, but they still have lives. Some of those have some baggage, like a couple sets of it, right? And they're coming into the church and the church is stressed out and overwhelmed and growing past its capacity. And so in Jerusalem, they hear about this and they send a guy by the name of Barnabas to go to Antioch to do two things. First, they wanted him to investigate and validate what was happening. In other words, they said, man, we're hearing all these stories that God's up to all of these different things, and and we want to just make sure that it's actually God. And so they send Barnabas to Antioch to verify that it is, in fact, the Spirit of God. And they tell him, if you get there, and it is the Spirit of God, we want you to stick around, and we want you to affirm what God is doing, and we want you to encourage the people who are there. What's interesting about this is that uh, you want to send a particular kind of dude to go do this, right? You want to send a particular kind of guy who knows how to identify the truth and who knows how to affirm and encourage. And Barnabas was the perfect guy for this. In fact, the name Barnabas means son of consolation or son of encouragement. In other words, whenever you think of Barn, you think of encouragement. 
Barnabas is the guy that you want around if you're discouraged and you need encouragement. He's the guy. He's the affirmer. He's the encourager. He's the blesser. He's the one that's always telling you how nice you look and how smart you are and how wise you are. He's the dude who comes alongside and puts his arm around the church of Jerusalem, sends Barnabas to this church at Antioch, and it says that he identifies that it is a work of God, that he's glad, and that he exhorts or encourages them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. In other words, his encouragement gives them the endurance that they need to keep going. His encouragement gives them the endurance that they need to keep going. I don't know if you've been at spots in your life where you're like, man, I'm done. This is crazy. I'm stressed. I'm busy. I'm maxed out. I got this Jesus thing going on. I'm trying to, but I keep falling flat on my face, and I'm just, I'm done. And then someone comes alongside you and puts their arm around you and just encourages you enough to take that next step that leads to the next step that leads to the next mile. That's what happens in Antioch. And I want to just kind of camp out around this idea of encouragement a little bit because uh, I think it's culturally relevant for us here in Madison. I have people ask me all the time, so you moved to Madison. Yep, why'd you do that? God told me to. What do you think about it? Good food, cynical people. That's why I tell them. Cynicism, I believe, is one of the primary currencies of our city. Intellectual cynicism, political cynicism, corporate cynicism. I mean, I could go on and on and on. And I think that cynicism, to some degree, if I'm being honest with you, has crept into the church. I meet lots of people who say, yeah, man, I did the church thing, and it was brutal, and I, I don't want to do that again. And so they just aren't connected anywhere. They still say they're Christians, but they're hurt and they're bummed out and they're cynical about it ever working and they're just, they're done. And I bump into people around religion, around politics, around business over and over and over and over and over again who I would say maybe accidentally are, are just cynical, cynical people. So I want you to think of the inverse or the opposite of that as encouragement or affirmation. And I want you to think about it in this regard with me. In Romans chapter 1, God says that one of the primary mechanisms that he uses to show his glory is what? Is creation. Now, whenever I read that, do you know what I think of? I think of Devil's Lake. I don't know why. It's just what I think of. I've been up there hiking, and you're walking around like, this is unbelievable. And because I believe that God created all things, we could talk about all of the things going on around that at another point. Because I believe that God is creator, I believe that God did that. And I believe that when I go to Devil's Lake and I hike around, I can be in a worship session just like we just were. Here's the other thing that I believe. I believe that God's creation isn't only a place. I also believe it's people. I also believe that God created you, that God created you with plans and purposes to exhibit his glory, and I believe that I can look at you, and when I'm intentionally trying to see the glory of God, I believe I see the image of God, and I have the opportunity to worship God because I see his creation and his glory in it. Here's what happens oftentimes. We're not intentional about that. We're not intentional about seeing the glory of God in people. We don't have a hard time seeing it at Devil's Lake. We just have a hard time seeing it in our coworker, or who we go to church with, or our boss. And yet God says, look, if you want to see my glory, look at my creation, and that's us. And so what I believe is that the opportunity to encourage and affirm others is an opportunity to worship and give glory to God. I believe it's hand in glove. And I believe that God says that the gift of encouragement is a spiritual gift, but the command to be encouraging is 
is to all Christians. God says this, don't let any corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but such as is used for the purpose of, the word is edifying, but it means building up. In other words, use your mouth to build people up, not tear them down. It's a command. It's a command, and it's an opportunity to see the glory of God everywhere. Now, a couple things about this. When we're talking about encouraging, the nature of encouragement is saying something that's true. In other words, you've had that time where someone says, hey, I got my hair done. How's it look? And you go, good. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's not encouragement. That's called pandering, right? That's called lying. Encouragement, biblical encouragement is encouragement that is true. Barnabas goes, he sees that in fact God is at work and he affirms, yes, God is at work and he encourages them in it. Biblical encouragement is twofold. It is to not say something that isn't true. And it is also to not fail to say something that is. It's not to lie so that someone can feel good. But it's also not to see something that's good and fail to say something about it. Somebody who is a biblical encourager, who practices affirmation, is somebody who is regularly attentive to and intentional in saying that is true and verbalizing it. That's what biblical encouragement is. To say God is at work, the glory of God is being shown, and I am going to bring witness to it for you and for me. And that requires a certain kind of intentionality. I think that encouragement is cynicism busting. Cynicism busting in two ways. If I'm being intentional about encouraging and affirming, it kind of replaces that bent in me that's cynical and pessimistic, doesn't it? If I'm, if I'm looking at you and I'm trying to figure out ways where God is at work so I can say, hey, there it is! <laughs> I'm not going, man, that guy's a mess. Because I don't have time. Because I'm not aiming in that regard. I'm not shooting for that. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm bent toward encouraging and edifying and cynicism and intentional affirmation cannot coexist. I think it's also cynicism busting for the receiver. How many of you guys, whenever someone comes up to you and they say, hey man, that's awesome that you did it, you go, why are you saying that? What, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? I, I don't know. I meant your shirt is nice. Why? Why? Oh, oh, cool, yeah, thanks. How many of you guys have that real awkward exchange whenever somebody says something nice about you that you're like, are you trying to work me? You trying to manipulate me right now? Did you just sign up for a multi-level marketing deal and you're trying to get me on your team? What's going on? What is that? It's, the, it's cynicism about affirmation because we think that when someone's affirming us, they're manipulating us. What if we were a part of a community where there It was such a value to encourage and affirm that you didn't have that knee-jerk, hey, what's that about? That it was that, this is just who we are, man. That I can can come to Damascus Road and I can be built up in small and in big ways and it's not so that I can be manipulated. It's because they really believe that God is at work in my life and that his glory is shining through. And so the speaker and the receiver has the opportunity to reject cynicism and make more central encouragement. It's also sanctifying. It's sanctifying in the sense that when I'm seeking to look at you and to affirm you, I'm not looking at who? Me. Yeah. Whenever the Bible talks about preferring one another in honor, what's it mean? It means I focus on you. And when I'm focusing on you, it keeps me from being self-centered. 
The other thing that it does is that it spurs us on toward sanctification. I don't know if you've been at points in your life, and when I say in sanctification, I just mean being transformed by Jesus, right? You've been at points in your life where, where you were struggling in your walk with God. It was dry, it was mundane, and someone came alongside and they sang a song or they preached a message or they put their arm around you, and it was just enough to get you going again. And toward what? Toward Jesus. The opportunity to be sanctified and to help in sanctification, it's also community building. I've noticed something about this. My son... If I say something nice about him, his body language changes in a direction. If I'm standing here and I say something nice to my son, which direction does his body lean? In. I've also noticed that in community, when we're an affirming community, do you know what direction we lead in? Toward one another. But when cynicism, when gossip, when pessimism, when... uh, sarcasm, when condescension for, you know, comedic purposes... We lean away. The opportunity to build community and the knowledge that when I lean into this church, I'm encouraged toward Jesus and by others. Maybe you've also had times where someone came alongside and you were struggling and they didn't say, how are you doing? Where are you going to go? They started using a plural. How can we get there? How can we pray about this? What is that? It's affirmation and encouragement, creating community. And then lastly, it's seed planting. I don't think that when Barnabas went to Antioch, he said, I'm going to be super nice to these people so that the Gentile church can continue so that in 2014 on the east side of Madison, a bunch of Gentiles can hang out in a church called Damascus Road. But that's exactly what happened. What would have happened if Barnabas would have gone and he would have just been a jerk to him? Hey, look, here's the deal. Stop whining, stop fussing, let's just get to work, all right? And he just would have been rude and maybe slightly berating and not encouraging. What would have happened to that church? It would have gotten more and more tired, and who knows where it would have gone or what would have happened to it. But what does Scripture say? It says that because of the affirmation of Barnabas to remain steadfast, the church continued and the church grew, and what happened? It spread out. And it planted other churches over time and space and years and decades and centuries. And you and I are in the family tree of this church that was encouraged by one dude. That's a powerful truth right there. That you don't know what's going on in a person's life. That the simplest kindness can plant a seed that will affect eternity. I believe that. I believe that. To practice affirmation as a gospel value in a church. Why do we do that? Well, because we love Jesus. That's why. And so we reject gossip. We, re- we reject uh, lack of kindness. We reject condescension. We reject uh, hurt- hurtful words. And we say, I- I'm going to steward my words and I'm going to be intentional with my affirmation so that God can be glorified and worshipped so that people can be built up. And we don't know what God's going to do with it, but we believe that it's a powerful truth. That's what happens here in Antioch. A couple chapters, or a, a chapter later, we see that a dude by the name of Herod starts to, back in Jerusalem, really significantly persecute the church. And in Acts chapter 12 and verse 1, he, uh, he goes and he grabs what I believe is probably the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem, and he executes him. And the public outcry is affirming of that decision. 
And so Herod's one of those guys that he looks strong and he looks powerful, but he's really a wimp, right? Because he finds out that people like this and he goes, oh, you like that? Okay, I'll do it again. And he goes and he gets Peter. And he throws Peter in jail, probably to publicly execute him. And the story that I read to you, starting in Acts chapter 12 and verse 6, was of Peter in jail, knowing that he's probably going to be executed, and the church at home praying that he won't be. Now, I'm going to make a couple kind of general assumptions here about this. I I believe that Peter was probably, and just hang with me here, and if you agree with my assumption, just shake your head yes, okay? Because if you don't, then we're going to have to start all over, and then you'll be here later, so let's just fake it if you don't, all right? (laughs) I believe that Peter, I believe that Peter was probably in prison praying that God would see to his release. Okay, thank you. We know that the church is at home praying for his release and for his safety. And so here's the story. Two groups of people are praying for the same thing. And as they're praying, an angel comes into Peter's cell, and here's what it says. He struck Peter on the side, okay, and woke him up saying, get up quickly. And so the angel acts like Peter is a teenage boy who won't wake up quickly, and he kicks him, okay? Kicks him in the side and says, hey, get up. His chains fall off. The angel says, put your clothes on, man. I'm not walking outside without any clothes. I'm put your sandals on. Wrap the cloak around you. And the story goes, and I don't mean story in terms of fictional. I mean in terms of this is what happened. He follows the angel out. They walk past the first guard, nothing. They walk past the second guard, nothing. They come to the gate. The angel just waves his hand or something. The gate goes flying open. And Peter steps out onto a public road. And then here's what the Bible says. Then Peter came to himself. In other words, Peter didn't really know what was happening. Hang on to that thought for a second. Peter looks at his GPS, okay, which was just stone with some scratching on it, and he says, I'm going to go to where I think the church probably is. And so he goes, and as he's walking, what are the people at the place he's going doing? They're praying that he'll be released. And so Peter gets to the house, and he knocks on the door, And a servant girl by the name, or a small girl by the name of Rhoda answers the door. And when I say answers, what I mean is that she comes up to the door and she puts her ear up to it. Now remember, the church is being persecuted, so she doesn't know who's on the other side. And so she's like, hello, hello, okay? And Peter's like, hey, let me in. And Rhoda is so excited that she leaves him at the door, runs back in, probably through a courtroom, or court area, into the room that people are praying for Peter to be released. Peter's at the front door! You can't be... And what do they tell her to do? Stop interrupting. We're praying. <laughs> right? Would some... Would, would the lousy parent please get a hold of their child <laughs> so that we can continue talking to God? <sighs> Lord, please, please, we're asking you to release Peter and Rhoda not knowing the proper etiquette around prayers, like, I just told you, Peter! Seriously, if someone doesn't get this girl, we are going to kick her out. And she just keeps going and keeps going. And so probably exasperatedly, someone says, look, someone just check the door so this dumb girl will shut up and we can get back to praying. Right? Open the door, and Pete's like, what's the deal? What took you so long, man? And they're like, we, we, didn't, we didn't know that you were at the front door. 
And Rhoda's like, I told you, suckers. <laughs> right? Yeah. Two reasons this story is really encouraging to me. The first is to again see that prayer works. I mean, in simplest terms, and that, that prayer doesn't work in some mystical, you know, that prayer works in tangible ways, that we can say, God, will you do? And God says, yes, and it happens. That's, that's a, a central truth to the Christian faith that is deeply, deeply encouraging. The second thing that's encouraging to me is that God's people have always prayed and failed to believe that he hears and does. You say, why is that encouraging to you? Because I know what that feels like. And because I love the fact that Dr. Luke, for all eternity in the Bible, is like, there's some church folks praying that God will release Peter, and when he did, they didn't believe it. And I know exactly what that feels like. And here's the other thing that I want you to just think about for a second. A bunch of church folk are in the room praying. Someone runs in and says, Peter's at the front door, and listen... No one says, maybe God answered our prayer. No one. All of them are praying, please release Peter. And then in the back of their mind, they're going, that ain't never going to happen. And I know what that feels like. I know exactly what that feels like. And the grace of God to say to a guy like me, you ain't alone. You're not alone in that. My people have always struggled to believe that prayer actually works. So let's think about this for a minute. A guy by the name of Paul Miller wrote a book called A Praying Life. I would highly recommend that you get it. Here's a quote from it. He says, we often struggle to pray because we focus on praying rather than focusing on God. We struggle to pray because we focus on praying rather than focusing on God. But truer words can never have been spoken. Okay, I'm going to get in the right spot. I'm going to put my hand left over right, right over left. Okay. I'm going to think happy thoughts. I'm going to confess every sin that I can think of from the fifth grade on. I'm going to ask this much, but not this much, because that would be crazy. What am I doing? Focusing on the, the mechanism, the, the medium of communication with God. I'm not focusing on God. And so if you're taking notes, I want, I want you to jot this down. I believe that it is the desire of God that we become convinced, convicted of both his ability, and church folks don't have any problem with that because we know it would be completely heretical to say God cannot answer prayer. So this is why there's two parts. Convinced of his ability and his willingness. And if you're like me, because I study the Bible and talk about the Bible for a living, I know that I'm supposed to say this thing, but somewhere between this theology and this belief is my prayer life. And when I pray, I go, look, man, I know you can. I just don't think you will for, for me. I've seen you do it for other people, but not, God bless you. Woo! <laughs> Made my heart stop. Oh, all right. <laughs> Can I tell you a quick story that has nothing to do with it? It might funk the flow, but it's really funny. I was in a meeting with a, with a lady who brought her kid to the meeting a couple weeks ago, and three times her kid, like, <gasps> mom's sitting right here. He goes, 
<laughs> like, <laughs> the first time I'm like, no way. And they did it two more times. I was dying laughing. Mom was not laughing quite as much as I was, but just like, <laughs> all right, <clears throat> where was I? desire of God to become fully convinced and convicted of his ability and his willingness. Now, uh, this, this idea of encouragement and of expectant prayer are two areas that I feel like I'm asking God to grow me in. And so I'm gonna, I want to introduce you to a man by the name of George Mueller, who we can both kind of look at as we're both thinking through this, this truth of expectant prayer and hopefully be encouraged by it, okay? George Mueller was born in 1805 in Bristol, England. He lived until 1892, and he was a local pastor. He pastored the same church in Bristol, England for 66 years. In 1834, at the age of 28, he founded, listen to the name of this organization, the Scripture Knowledge Institute for Home and Abroad. He did not talk to a marketing major before he did that, all right? the Scriptural Knowledge Institute for Home and Abroad, and that institute had five things that it did. The first was that they wanted to start schools for children and adults to teach biblical knowledge. Second, they wanted to distribute Bibles. Third, they wanted to support missionaries. Fourth, they wanted to hand out gospel tracts and biblical resources. And fifth, they wanted to board, clothe, and scripturally educate destitute children who have lost both parents by death. In other words, he wanted to start orphanages. And if you Google George Mueller, what you see his name most deeply connected to first, and we'll talk about the second in a minute, is orphanages. George Mueller talking about the orphanages gave his reason for their starting. And I want you to listen to this as closely as you can. He says, these orphan houses exist to display that God can be trusted and to encourage believers to take him at his word. Let me tell you the reason I love that. He doesn't say, it's for the kids. He doesn't say that. Now, the kids are the recipients of this belief. But what he says is, I'm going to start something so that people can look at it and say, that dude's God can be trusted. And to encourage believers to just take him at his word. And so because of that vision statement, George Mueller established one rule for himself, and that was to never ask any human being for help, no matter how great the need might be, but to make his wants made known to the God who has promised to care for his servants and to hear their prayer. One of the most famous stories about George Mueller's life is that one day he comes into one of his orphanages And the schoolmaster tells him that they don't have any food. And so he tells the schoolmaster to take the kids into the dining room and to set up uh, place settings for them. He goes into the dining room. He walks to the front and he says, Lord, I want to thank you today for the food that you're about to provide us. You want to talk about expectant prayer. He says, amen. They sit and wait. A couple minutes, there's a knock at the door. There's a knock at the door and the baker says to him, the last night he couldn't sleep and he knew that God wanted him to bake three extra sets of bread, three batches of bread for the orphanage and that he would bring it in right away. 
A couple minutes later, another knock. It was the milkman. His cart had broken in front of the orphanage. And the milkman said, by the time I fix the wheel, the milk will be spoiled. Do you have any need for some free milk? They brought the milk in, 10 large cans, just enough to to feed 300 children, which was the exact number that was in the room. When George Mueller began to build orphanages, there was 3,600 orphans in England and twice that many under eight and in prison. At the end of his lifetime, George Mueller had seen God build five orphanages that served 10,024 kids, 3,000 of which became followers of Jesus. As a pastor over his lifetime, Mueller is said to have preached in 42 countries, this is in the 1800s, to over 3 million people, listen, to have known of 50,000 specific answers to prayer, and to have received $7.2 million. Mueller, at the end of his life, set forth five conditions for prevailing prayer. One, to understand that the entire dependence of prayer is upon the merits of Jesus only for grounds of claiming blessing. In other words, whenever I come to the Father... I say, the only reason I can come is because of him. The only reason that I'm here is because of him. I don't have merit, he does, and so I'm coming on his. Mueller said that's number one. Number two was separation from all known sin. Because he paid the penalty for my sin, I must admit that I'm still a sinner. And because I want to be in right relationship with you, I'm confessing those knowing that you're faithful and just to forgive all sin and to give his righteousness to me. Number three, faith in God's promises confirmed by his oath. What does God use as collateral for his promises? Does anyone know? Himself. You know how you go to the bank and you're like, I'd like to do this loan. They're like, well, we need some collateral. Here's what God says. I'm all the collateral you need. And so Mueller says we come based on Jesus, confessing our sin, having faith in the fact that God's promises are true and can be believed. He says, fourth, to act in accordance with God's will and not ask selfishly. And fifth, Mueller calls it importunity. It just means repetition. Keep asking, keep asking, keep asking, keep asking, keep asking. A guy by the name of Dave Ramsey, hang with me for a second, makes this statement. Overnight successes take about 10 years. You know what? I tell you that story about George George Mueller. Um, I think that we know the answer to the prayer, but we don't know how many times he had to ask. It's kind of like how we think that people have overnight successes. They're not an overnight success. They just were persistent. Prayer is the same. Prayer is the same. And Mueller says, I come to the Father based on Jesus. I come to the Father confessing my sin. I come to the Father believing that he is who he says he is. I come to the Father asking that his will would be done. And I keep coming and coming and coming and coming and coming. And at the end of his life, he says 50,000 times God answers my prayer. 50,000. I want to add one more to that list because I think in terms of tone, it's incredibly important. Mueller says this toward the end of his life. I saw more clearly than ever 
that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. You introduce me to a guy who believes that he has everything that he needs because of Jesus, and he'll pray different to a guy who doesn't think he does. Somebody says, man, I already have everything that I need, and so any, anything that God gives me on top of that is just the cherry on top. Versus somebody who's trying to earn, versus somebody who's, who's praying out of disparity and scarcity. Mueller says the most important thing was every day I woke up seeking to have my heart attuned to the fact that my primary satisfaction was in Jesus. And out of that, I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed. And over time, I put God to the test enough times, and I saw him come through 50,000. I served 10,000 orphans. I raised or received $7.2 million in the mid-1800s. But the thing that I always needed and the thing that was always primary, the thing that was always the most fulfilling was Jesus. We talked today about two things. One was encouragement and the other was praying expectantly. My prayer for my own life and for you, yours is that today you're encouraged on two fronts. One, that your doubts about prayer are not unique to you. And that God still answers them. Think about this for a second. Those people were in a room praying. God answered their prayer. And while they didn't believe, God still did it. In other words, you don't have to believe enough for God to answer. In fact, sometimes you're like, I don't believe. And God's like, I know, here. And I love the fact that the people of God can be joined not by our proper belief systems, but by our struggle to trust a God who's sufficient. So I hope that you're encouraged in that regard today. Number two, I hope that you're encouraged in the idea that the same God who saved and heard George Mueller saved and hears you. The same God who saved and heard George Mueller is the same God who saves and hears you. I don't have some so then now. I just want us to process the truth of that. We serve a God who saves us by his grace, who hears us by his grace, who answers by his grace. That's all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you today that you're, you hear me right now with all of my flaws, idiosyncrasies, sinfulness, brokenness, pride, arrogance. I thank you today for the encouragement from your Holy Spirit that you want to build a community that's affirming, and that you hear us when we pray. God, I want to resist the temptation to say to people, okay, now go out and do. Because I think that we've tried that. I just pray today that you would speak to us and answer this prayer. Help us to believe that you hear us. Encourage us in the belief that you hear us. Close the disparity between our belief of your ability and willingness. And reinforce it in our hearts over and over, and over, and over again. And as you do, God, we'll give you praise, and we'll give you glory, and we'll rejoice in your goodness and your faithfulness, and we'll thank you for it. In the good name of Jesus, amen.